This is the Real Talk University podcast, where your hosts, Andre and Christian, explore success stories outside of the classroom. How's it going, everyone? We are back with another episode of Real Talk University. This is basically a podcast brought to you by two college freshmen, myself, Andre Haeckel. And I'm Christian. What's up, guys? And we bring you interviews with world-class entrepreneurs, and today we have an interview for you guys with David Heinemeyer Hansen, who was really fun to interview. He's actually the co-author of one of my favorite business books of all time called Rework, and also he's a designer and developer for another app called Basecamp, which is a productivity tool that I've also used. And he was really cool to talk to, had a lot of experience in Silicon Valley, uh, and he really made you think differently about how you should work uh, and the amount of work you put in and the ways you work. So I'll let Christian touch on that as well. And I hope you guys enjoy. Yeah, so something else that he did that was really interesting, and he was the guy behind a program called Ruby on Rails, which is basically a website or an application framework software. And it was behind apps such as Twitter and Airbnb, so he was super influential in making that. Um, if you check out his social media, he's really, he just doesn't go with what the public views is like conventionally, goes against everything. He calls out, he, like, the Washington Post, and he, I, he recently did an article or retweeted an article about how Uber and Lyft could eventually be charging a ton of money, and he just like basically goes against the public's opinion, which I really, really love. Just like his book, Rework, I mean, he goes against everything that most people say. He talks about how you should work, obviously, smarter, not harder. Like, putting in 80 hours a week isn't cool, and it doesn't make you look better. Like, just be, be efficient and do your work and get on with your day. So I really enjoyed what he had to say. He's a really cool dude. He does whatever he wants, and... Hope you enjoyed the episode. So let's go. Yeah. And guys, just before you get into the episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well as platforms like YouTube. Please share this episode if you enjoyed it. And as always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We ask you just to do these simple things. Uh, we don't ask for any money, anything like that. This is all we ask. Uh, subscribe on all the platforms. Leave a quick review. Take you a few minutes. And if you enjoy the episode, be sure to share it with your friends. And without further ado, let's get into it. What is up, everyone? Before we get into this brand new episode of Real Talk University, I wanted to deliver to you guys a message and a special offer from our sponsor, Audible. Audible is the largest audiobook platform on the planet, and they are offering our listeners, the Real Talk University podcast community, with a free 30-day trial of their platform, which includes one free audiobook. If you don't like Audible after 30 days for free, you could literally quit end the subscription and not be charged and still get your one free audiobook. On this podcast, you guys know we stress the importance of self-education, personal development, reading, all that kind of stuff. And this is your opportunity. There's absolutely no excuse to not hop on this. We are offering a free 30-day trial. Test it out. If it's not something you like, no problem. There's literally no risk. You're getting a free audiobook, a free 30-day trial with the platform. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash real talk again that's audibletrial.com slash real talk there's going to be a link in the show notes go ahead sign up let us know what book you choose let us know what you think and uh best of luck but this literally guys is your key to success and your pathway to personal development there's absolutely no excuse okay right. cool we'll get right into it 
Uh, my name is Andre. I have Christensen right next to me. We're the hosts of Real Talk University, and uh, we're happy to have you on. So we're just going to get right into questioning if you're ready to go. Awesome. Shoot. Uh, so if you just want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. My name is David Heinemarie Hansen. I am the creator of a web framework called Ruby on Rails um, that's been used at all sorts of places from GitHub to Twitter to Shopify. Um, a laundry list of sites have been using, I think, uh, last count, some 2 million apps online uh, built with Ruby on Rails. And then I'm also a founder and CTO at Basecamp, which is a project management collaboration tool that mostly small to medium-sized businesses or small teams within large businesses use to get on the same page um, and get work done. So those are really the two sort of uh, areas of my life's work. Uh, one actually sprung out of the other. I created Ruby on Rails as part of creating Basecamp. Um, beyond that, I'm originally from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, where I started working with Jason Fried, my business partner at uh, Basecamp in, I think, 2001. So uh, we've been at this whole thing for about 18 years now. Um, I live now in, in Malibu, California. Awesome, awesome. So could you just go into a little bit about how you and Jason got connected and then how you were hired by him initially? Sure. Yeah, so uh, Jason started a company called 37 Signals, a web design shop back in 1999 with three other people. And a couple of years into that, I think 2001, he was interested in making some software for himself. He had an idea for, um, uh, what was it, uh, managing your own personal library of books and CDs and so on, lending them to, to other people. He had been doing some software like that in the mid-90s with something called FileMaker Pro and wanted to make a web app with it. So he wrote on the uh, Signal versus Noise block, which is the, the blog that's still going today, uh, 20 years later, that was uh, started when, when the company was started in 1999, uh, some questions about PHP. He was trying to learn, I, I believe it was uh, how to do pagination uh, from page to page. I didn't know Jason. I was just a fan of the company. It had such a unique uh, approach and uh, voice. It was a web design company that when you went to the web site for the company, it was all text. Like first right there, you go like, what? Like you guys are designers and, and, and all you have on your website is text. That was just really intriguing to me. So anyway, I just wrote Jason back um, an email saying, hey, I know the answer to this question. And I gave him some pointers on where to go with it. And we traded emails back and forth and Jason tried to make it work before deciding ultimately that it was just easier to hire me than it was to uh, learn how to program. So I started working with with Jason both on on this um, project that was sort of for himself for 37 signals, but also in collaboration with the company on uh, client projects. So they would do the design, I'd do the programming, and I kind of had that as a side gig while going uh, to the Copenhagen Business School, which I was uh, I had just enrolled in actually when um, when I met Jason. Or actually, I didn't even meet Jason. That's an overstatement. I sent Jason an email. We traded emails. And for about six months, that was the only mode of communication we had. I think it took six months before we spoke on the phone and probably more than another year before um, we met in person. I was just Copenhagen, Denmark. He's in Chicago, Illinois, seven time zones away. But we got started working together and found that we really enjoyed that and, um, and ended up 
in, in 2003, then starting work on Basecamp, which is sort of the product that we're still running today. And the, let's call it pivot from being a web design company to being a product company. Um, we released Basecamp in 2004 and then let it grow for about, I think a year and a half before we switched to doing Basecamp full time and said goodbye to the consulting business. Awesome. So during those six months to a year where you haven't yet met Jason, what were you doing? Were you in school or were you just working remotely? Uh, I was in school and, and working remotely. So I was attending Copenhagen Business School and doing my classes. And, and I just basically told Jason like, hey, I have about 10, 15 hours a week um, that we can, that I'm available for, for programming work. And that worked out totally well. And it, I think it was one of those founding experiences where we learned the value of um, constraints that we didn't actually have a lot of time to work together. I didn't have a lot of time to dedicate to these other projects because, hey, I was going to school and also, hey, I had a life and I wanted not just to sit in front of a computer all the time. Um, so we started working together. And even when we started on Basecamp, which was kind of like this whole product uh, i was the only technical person and for basecamp in particular i was dedicating about 10 hours a week because we actually still had some consulting clients as well i was servicing with another maybe five hours a week so about 10 15 hours a week i was working on things in collaboration with jason and like that's not a lot right like most days you hear about people, oh man i'm working 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day or 14 hours a day or whatever it is that people are bragging with just how hard they're working. And our entire founding story is kind of the opposite of that. Like, Hey, we made something happen on 10 hours a week. And then we spend about six months or a little more than that building a whole product. It wasn't the greatest product in the world, but it solved a lot of real problems for real customers who were then interested in paying us money to purchase that. And that's really all it kind of takes, right? Like I think there's, often this hero myth that the only way you can succeed is by working your eyeballs out. Mm, no, at least that's not our experience. And we kept being sort of uh, surprised by the constant barrage of mythology that was spilling out of Silicon Valley and startups that basically just kept beating the drum that like, unless you dedicate your entire life and every working moment to this one business, you're going to fail. And we just like, wait, like looking at each other and going like, yeah, that's not what we do. Things are pretty good. Um, here we are 18 years later, things are still pretty good. And we still don't work like that. Um, so I think it just, um, it kind of, it, it was never a mission. It was never like, Oh man, we're going to sit down and we're going to sort of work differently from everyone else. We just sat down and, and worked the way that kind of came natural and fit with the other obligations that we had in life. And then we realized that, okay, that wasn't that common when compared to Amer the American startup scene in general. And then I guess we kind of got a little militant about it. Um, just getting sick and tired of hearing, everyone in American startup culture go work, 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 work. Otherwise you're going to fail, 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 fail. And just going like, fuck, that's bullshit. That's not how we work. We um, got to a very nice place, uh, a business that I said that has been around for, um, well, the entire business from formation, almost 20 years. And it's been profitable from day one, every year since. And today's is creating millions of dollars in profits every year. Like, how is that not a success? Um, 
So we kind of got in, interested in, in telling that story, telling our story, providing a, a counter narrative, a counter melody to all the crap we kept hearing about how you're supposed to work. And that resulted in, um, first it resulted actually in some, um, some workshops that we did at the company where we kind of just invited uh, up to 30 people to come join and we tell our story about how we build Basecamp. Then we took a bunch of that material and put it in into a, a book that we self-published called Getting Real in 2006, which is the story basically about how to build a web app like we built Basecamp. And what we learned from that experience was that a lot of people took important to them lessons away from that book and they weren't in the software industry. So then we realized, oh, perhaps some of these lessons are broader than just within software. And we ended up writing three more books, uh, Getting Real in 2010, about just the general state of how we work and how we approach business and hiring and marketing and all that stuff. And then we wrote a more particular book in 2013 called Remote Office Not Required about how we'd been working since the foundation remotely. And then just um, November of last year, we released uh, our fourth book together called uh, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which goes really straight for the juggler of the bullshit of 80 hour weeks and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, you said a lot there. Um, we're going to go into more about your books. Obviously, that's a highlight. Uh, I've learned so much reading just the first book I read was Rework. Uh, we're just, we're going to go into that a little bit. But I just want to point out the fact that like, you mentioned so many people think that it has to be crazy at work, you have to work these long weeks. And then these two people that think the complete opposite that are on two different sides of the planet all of a sudden connect and create this, you know, all this content and why it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And I just think that story is really cool about how you guys found each other and how you guys have like such similar viewpoints. I just want to point that out. <clears throat> so moving into the book um, aspect of what you were talking about, what is the process to writing books? Because obviously it can seem very daunting to sit down and like publish a book that's 200 plus pages, you know? Totally. So we never did that. We never just sat down and said like, oh, let's write 200 pages. Um, all our books pretty much have a very substantial part of the content was what we put together over the year. So we've been blogging on signalvnoise.com for, as I said, like basically 20 years now. Um, I, I've been part of that journey for a good 18. And we would write little insights and lessons and perspectives as they arrived to us. So Rework, for example, really was a collection of the greatest hits of all the ideas we'd had over 10 years. It wasn't that we just sat down and like, oh, let's nug out this book, which is also why the books are structured in this um, short essay form because that's how the insights arrive. They arrive as short essays. Um, a lot of the stuff that was in Rework uh, at least a good, I think, Rework in particular, maybe like 70% of that was ideas we had either talked about at conferences or we had blogged about or had been tweets. Like a lot of the sort of the generation of the ideas, we get to test that first before we put it into the book. Um, but I think that, that really the, the key to, for us to writing books is to have something to say. And having something to say, um, kind of it has to come first. We can't sit down and say, oh, let's decide to write a book. That's not the process. The process is to slowly discover that there is some particular topic that ties together 
a lot of these ideas that we have, a lot of the stuff that we have to say, and that can be presented in some cohesive notion. Like re or Remote, for example, which was a, is a book about working remotely and how to make that work, came as a reaction to talking to other business owners in the tech world, where we would get these um, glib, unreasoned, poorly thought out responses of why they weren't allowing remote workers. They'd say, oh yeah, remote work, I mean, that's kind of cool, but like um, our company is like really creative and like to be really creative, you have to sit down at a table together uh, in front of a whiteboard and like, that's like really the only place you can get to these deep insights. And we went like, are you fucking kidding me? That is the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. What do you think businesses that work remotely do? Do you think they're not creative? Um, I don't think anyone would, would point at Basecamp or the work that we do and say like, well, that's not creative work. Like you, you can't do that because you're not working remotely. And we just went like, this is such horseshit. And it is so transparently horseshit in the sense that like, it isn't a well-reasoned argument. It doesn't stand up to even a minimum of scrutiny. So. That was a lot of the, um, it was actually three conversations I had within about three months with three different entrepreneurs in, in tech companies where I had that remote conversation talk with them. And I just kept hearing the same stupid shit. And I go like, I was just thinking in my head, you guys are smarter than this. Like you guys are running companies and you haven't even put an iota of thought into this major shift in how people work together. That's a goddamn shame. Someone should tell you what's up. And we were like, well, I guess we kind of have uh, uh, 10 plus years of experience figuring out what's up when it comes to remote work. Maybe we should just write that book. Um, and I think the same thing with, um, with the latest book, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, was, was actually also born out of conversations where you'd have these conversations with people and you'd ask, oh, so how's work? And they'd go like, oh man, it's so crazy. Like, oh, I just, I wish there were more hours in the day. That's one of those fucking trite things that people keep repeating over and over again because they think they sound smart and accomplished when they say that, which they're really not. There's plenty of hours in the day. First of all, there's 24 and you should be sleeping like eight and a half plus of those hours and you should be recuperating. Really, there's eight hours a day to work. That's fucking plenty. The reason it's not plenty for a lot of people is that they waste the vast majority of their time on bullshit that doesn't matter. So if they instead just filtered those hours and filtered out all the bullshit, there'd be eight productive hours left, which is a treasure. I mean, as I said in the beginning, um, we built Basecamp, the company, the business of me having 10 hours per week, not per day. So all of a sudden having eight hours a day, I mean, that's a feast. You don't need any more than that. In fact, I'd say even when I get eight hours a day, there's no way I'm working productively eight hours a day. If I get like four, five hours a day of like truly productive time, that is a massive slam dunk of a day where I'm really moving forward, right? Most people just don't. They slice up their day into tiny little work moments and they have a meeting here and a meeting there and checking internet there and being on Twitter or being on all sorts of other distracting um, sort of areas and they don't get any core work because they don't string hours together into cohesive, complete blocks of time that allow them to do that deep, creative, diligent work they want to do. And instead, they, they go searching in other places. Oh, I can't get work done at work, so I need more hours. What if I basically just work two jobs and I work 80 hours a week? Maybe I'll get something done then. The vast majority of people I hear brag about how they're working 80 hours a week, I feel like you aren't even working half as hard as I am, and I only work 40 hours a week, which means that you're wasting four times as much time as I am. 
that's just stupid. I mean, that's just like the math of it just doesn't add up. Um, the physiological aspect of it doesn't map up, add up either. I think it's, it's one of those things where the tech industry prides itself of being so objective and being so intellectual and sort of understanding the science. And the vast majority of people who brag about working endless hours haven't even looked into the first page of the scientific studies that show over and over again that to do uh, great creative work for the long term, you need to recuperate, you need to sleep, you need to exercise, you need to eat well, you need to do all these other things. And instead, it gets put up in this false dichotomy that you have to choose. Oh, either you really want this business, but that means you can't have any friends, you can't work out, you can't eat well. You have to basically just be um, sort of sitting in your chair for, for 14 hours a day while your body withers away and your mind gets blasted. And you're like, what? what the fuck are you talking about? This doesn't make any goddamn sense. And not just in an intellectual sense that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in any way, right? Like it only makes sense as sort of this uh, hero Kate that you're so amazing, you're so awesome, you're so deserving of, of venture capital millions because you're really putting it all in there. You're really investing yourself in it. And it's just, it, it's A, false, it's B, stupid, and it's C, not how people are doing it everywhere, right? Like this is not a universal phenomenon, by the way. Um, I think the American tech industry and startup industry in particular is afflicted with this in a myopic way, where if you look to Europe or you look to other places where they don't work like this, somehow entire countries and continents still operate and still create companies and products that people want to buy without working in this stupid way. All right, that was yeah. a long rant. <laughs> so, no, it's so awesome. true. It's so true, though. And I think a lot of the things that, you know, are the cause of this is that people, like you said, they think that if they just work these long, tireless hours, and they just think that they'll deserve success by doing that, even right. though they're not actually focusing on the thing that matters, which is putting in value rather than just time, because there, there's a huge difference, right? Um, and I, I just wanted to ask you a quick question about Basecamp. And, you know, Basecamp actually gives you the ability to work in remote teams. So was that kind of the idea or was that something you figured out as you were developing this product? Yeah, that's a good point. So we built Basecamp for ourselves. When we started building Basecamp, we weren't even intending this was going to be a product. We just wanted a better way to run our own consulting business. And so we built a, a, a piece of software that would work well when I was seven time zones away in Denmark and I'd be working uh, let's say uh, in the morning, my time before Chicago woke up and that I could still be productive and I could still uh, put down the major issues we need to resolve. And a lot of that resolved around the idea of asynchronous collaboration that we could not operate. We could not work together. If every decision we had to make, if every status update, if every um, sort of exploration had to be a meeting, if we had to sit down at the same time in front of each other, even if it was video chat, um, we just couldn't work together. That wouldn't, that wouldn't work. Neither would even think like I am or chat, which also required the both participants were sitting there at the same time waiting for the other person to speak. So we needed a way of working that was um, conductive to this sort of asynchronous time shifting, where I'd work at least half my day with Chicago being asleep. And what we found out was that that's not just a great way of working if you're seven time zones away. That's a great way of working even if you're sitting right next to each other. When I moved to Chicago in 2005 and started coming to the office, one of the first lessons I had was we got less done 
when I was in the office, not more done. We got less done. So we really doubled down on the idea of asynchronous communication, which goes back to this point of how are you using your hours and how can you string them together? If your day is constantly punctured by meetings and places where you need to be at a certain time, either in chat or video or whatever, you don't get to control your creative schedule, which means that if you're just in a good flow right now, um, you might lose that flow because you have an obligation you have to go to rather than carry that streak out and carry that motivation out and finish that up and then go like, Oh, I just put in three ace hours. Now I'm coming up for, for air. Let me check base cam and see what's up. And I'll check base cam and I'll see, Oh, someone pinged me or someone wrote up a message and I'll give them my reply. Then it doesn't matter that it's three hours late. Uh, the vast majority of interesting discussions or updates, they're not time critical. People are so addicted to the idea of ASAP. Um, and, and it's really an addiction in the sense that it's, it's really harmful for both parts of the equation, both for the person who thinks that their entire world has to stop until someone gets back to them on, with their opinion or their verdict or whatever, and for the person who thinks, oh, I have to just drop whatever I have in my hands because there's a new, because someone wants to chat with me, what the fuck? That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, again, the purpose is that we, as a company, as an individual, we want to do great work. Um, how can we structure our day in such a way that we allow ourselves to do that great work? And I think most companies are almost structured in a way to, as, in, as though they were designed to prevent great work, which is why a lot of people, once they go into the workforce and start going to the office, realize they can't get work done at work. Like the worst place in the world to try to get work done is in that beautiful, light-filled, open office where you have a salesperson person yelling on the phone over there and you have designers chatting about something over there and you're just fucking trying to get an hour of concentration in and it's impossible because your entire field of vision is bombarded constantly with people moving around you're constantly hearing all these partial conversations that your brain is trying to pay a little attention to here and there and what do you have left you have a shitty brain left that's what you have left and do you get good creative work out of that no you don't you just try to squeeze that brain harder and harder. Oh, I got to work more hours. Or I got to do these other things. And it just ends up getting worse, not better. So a big pitch we have, uh, particularly with the most recent book, is to think about your company and your organization as a product in itself. Is the product working well? Is the organization working well? Is it allowing people to do great work? If it's not, and I argue in most cases, it is not, you should fix it. And you can fix it. Organizations and companies like software are malleable. You can adopt different policies. You can try different things. You can start working in different ways. Um, and all work, ways of working together are not created equal. Some are seriously just better than others. And this isn't rocket science, but clearly just like our, our experience with remote work, it's not very well distributed common sense. Right. I think that even working long hours is due to the fact that people aren't able to focus and then they think that working long hours is going to lead to the end product being better. But if you're working that long, like you said, your brain is just fried by the end. You want to go home. You're sick of being there. So what you were saying about having a quiet workplace is definitely huge. And you, what you were talking about sounded a lot like um, what you wrote about when I read Rework. So I read in there somewhere that you had to cut out a lot of the stuff that you were going to put in there. So how were you able to do that? Because the stuff that was in there was gold. So I'm assuming that some of the stuff you had to cut out was also very important too. Well, I think that's uh, it's a great point. The reason why rework and hopefully the 
majority of our writing, when we publish it feels tight is because it's only half, like literally. Rework was twice the length when we started the editing process. We had double the number of essays and pretty much the same was true with, um, um, why it doesn't have to be crazy at work. And perhaps maybe we didn't have quite as much access for remote, but we cut out a lot. The way to get to a finely honed product, either whether it's a book or it is an actual piece of software product is to cut, 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 like edit essentially, right? The, the first draft of anything is crap. Like it's full of dead weight. It's full of half ideas. If you want to produce great writing, you have to edit your writing. And the key component of editing your writing is taking out all the stuff that doesn't need to be there. Um, and that doesn't mean that those ideas are bad or whatever. It just means that the final product is stronger if you edit it out. If you take the weight at the things that are just merely interesting or like sort of cool and you just leave the stuff in there that punches like full power the totality of, of the product begins so much stronger if there's just no fat in it um so that's really been uh, it was funny because when we first did uh, rework which was the book we published in 2010 uh, it was our first book with the publisher. The book before that we had self-published. And we had a contract with the publisher that, that I think said something about a word count, which should be sort of similar to anyone in school who was sort of like, oh, your paper has to be 40 pages long or 20 pages long or whatever. Um, and, that, and that's always such a counterintuitive, even dumb way of, of scoping work. Oh, how big it is. That's not the point. The point is, what points are you making? What do you have to say? And anyway, we went to the publisher with like an idea of like how long it was going to be. And then they saw the first draft and like, oh, yeah, this is good. And then we turned in our final edit and they were like, where's, where's the rest of the book? And we we're like, we cut it. And they're like, what? What are, what are you talking about? You cut it. Um, and it was a little bit of a struggle, I think, in a good way. And, and it's kind of funny, like one of the reasons we ended up with so many illustrations illustrations in rework was because we had to pad the book. The uh, publisher was basically like, well, business books have to be a certain size. That's just how it is. Like they have to be the thick and otherwise they don't look like there's real content. And we were like, well, we're not padding our writing. We're not adding a bunch of bullshit in there that it doesn't feel tight. So what else do you want to do? So we shrunk the margins, we increased the line size. I think we even bumped the font size, like all the classic tricks of someone in school trying to pat their work. We did all of that. And then every other page, essentially we added in an illustration. So like, if you truly boiled the book down to standard book size, it would be like a quarter of the thickness. But that was what it, what it took. What's funny is um, with WeWork in particular, and, and with all of our books, one of the key points of feedback that we universally get is, gratitude for how short they are that you can read it in two and a half hours three hours whatever read it in a day a flight um and most people go like i never finish business books they just keep droning on and on and on about the same points and stretching them out and those points should just have been like five blog posts they shouldn't have been a goddamn 300 page book and we found the same thing both jason and i have been critical about a lot of business writing and you're like it's just fucking too long just tell me the stuff where you actually have something to say, but that's kind of the economics of the book business. Don't really allow for that. Like if you have 75 pages of gold, they're gonna say, that's great. Now add another 200 pages of bullshit. So we have 275 pages total. And like, that's what we're gonna sell. 
very infrequently do you get the opportunity to just publish 75 pages of gold, which is kind of like what we had, like 75 pages of, of really punchy stuff that ended up being 220 pages because we added all this padding in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think the unique part about that book was the designs for sure. Like it just kind of helped you visualize what you guys were saying. And that was actually the only book I've ever read within one sitting. And I, I think that's like the most effective way to do it because you grasp all the information. It's not something that you have to put off, you keep putting off. And all the advice right. in there was actionable insights. So it's something that you can take and apply right away, which is obviously a re really important part in writing a book yep. so that's awesome and i like how you, it like kind of relates to what you said about you have to work smarter not harder like if you can just read a book in 30 minutes and get a lot out of it it doesn't really matter like don't sit there and read for five hours just to get the same stuff but would you ever consider like taking what you cut out and making a rework too or like a second version of the first one yeah we thought about making a new edition but i think the uh the new book, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, it is the spiritual successor to rework. I mean, remote kind of went into a more um, specific niche and we wanted to make this point about remote work and so on, which is, it's kind of funny. It, it, like the book didn't do as well as rework when it first came out. And I think part of that was the world just kind of, the US in particular, just kind of wasn't ready for that. Now, I think um, it, it's so much more standard that like remote work is just a, a standard component of particularly new companies. So I feel like maybe that book was just a little bit ahead of its, uh, of its time, but with, it doesn't have to be crazy at work. We, we pick up a lot of the same threads that we had from WeWork and we kind of try to go in more um, specific directions with them because we're also kind of boiling down the idea of why is it that we've been able to do the things that we've done over 20 years? Like, we have a pretty small company, all things to considered. Like for a very long time, we were less than 20 people. We had four major products operating at the same time. We were writing a book. We were running Ruby on Rails at the Wayfront. We were doing like a lot of stuff with not a lot of people. And we would often look at larger companies and we'd look at some tech company and, and they'd say like, oh, we're 300 people. And we're like, what do all those people do? What do they do all day? Like, how can you be 300 people on this thing? And I think what we learned is um, it's pretty easy actually to be 300 people on a thing that could be done in essence by a 10th of those people. You just make sure that each individual don't get too much done every day, easy, right? And then you get all into all these compound factors where um, every person you add, you have increasing communication radiuses, right? Like it, it because it's so much harder to keep a company of 300 and Informed and a mission and aligned than it is to keep a company of 50 people informed and mission and aligned. Um, so you lose a lot of sort of just the sheer productive power from a larger group. It's not like a group of uh, 200 people is four times as effective as a group of 50. Never happens like that. Maybe they're like 30% more effective or, or productive, I should say. Effective may even actually be net negative. Um, but yeah, so we kind of uh, just had that idea that um, staying small, staying nimble, it was not a, a stepping stone. We weren't going for somewhere. Jason and I didn't sit down, oh man, I wish we could someday build a company of 1,000 people, 10,000 people. In fact, we sat down and did the opposite. Oh, all the miserable people we know, they run large companies. I mean, that's a little clip. But just that uh, <laughs> the... the idea that bigger is better is such an ingrained idea in business that you 
you're supposed to always be chasing growth and you're supposed to be always be getting bigger and have more impact. And we said like, you know what? We like impact. We don't, we like changing people's minds. We like delivering a good product, but we don't want a big company and we don't think we need it. And thus we have to set up our company in such a way that we can get away with not doing that. Like how, how can you get to run a, a business like we have today with more than a hundred thousand uh, paying companies when you only have 50 people, mm, you, there's a lot of things you can't do. And there's a lot of bullshit you have to cut out for that to happen. And we try to distill that into, into our books. And the latest book really focuses on those two areas. One, how to make your time count in such a way that you don't need 80 hours, that 40 hours feels plenty. Uh, and secondly, how do you make sure that you're, that you don't get sucked into the stereotypical ambitions of companies, which is constant um, growth. And in fact, that we've reached the point with Basecamp where we're like, hey, we're big enough. I don't, I don't need any more. I, I don't need 300,000 customers. I don't need a million customers. 100,000 plus is plenty. I don't want a larger company. I like the size of 50 people. That means I don't have to have four layers of management. And for me to have my entire workday constrained to having calls with all these layers of management, I can actually do real work. And again, that's also a little flip because management is real work too. But I like to work with my hands. I like to program. I like to create things myself, not just directing others to create things. And the same with Jason, he loves to design and we both like to write. So if we want to continue writing, programming and designing, we have to set up the company in such a way that it doesn't consume us from a management perspective. And we thought like, hey, 50 people is a good place to do that. But that requires us to reject a lot of the standard ideas about capitalism and growth and, and whatever um, and say no and say, do you know what? There's all these opportunities. Actually, just uh, in the last year, we, we shut down signups for a major multi-million dollar product called HiRise, which is the CRM system that we've had for 11 years. And we did that. Not because we didn't think this could turn into a great product. We could have hired more people and, and run it and we could have built a bigger product based on that, but we didn't want to. Like Basecamp is big enough. It uh, sort of requires our full attention of 50 people. That's good. There's all the satisfaction we need in that. And then what we get back is that Jason and I, as I said, we get to work ourselves. We don't just get to direct others and we get to have a life and we get to live that life. Like what is the purpose of spending all this time building up this great company that's generating millions of dollars in profits if we don't get to enjoy any of it outside of work. That just seems, again, dumb to me. So true. Yep, no doubt. I always say that, like, what's the point of working and grinding your ass off for all these years just to not have anything to do with it in the end and not have any fun? But you ever receive any, like, backlash or, like, disapproval of your ideas? Because obviously they go against what a lot of corporations believe in. Constantly. Uh, in fact, to the point where if we don't receive that backlash, I kind of get skeptical about whether we even said something. Um, I think the majority of our opinions have always been formed and forged in the sort of whirlwind of pushback. Um, Kathy Sierra, which is a wonderful writer um, on the topic of creating passionate users. Uh, she used to have a blog in the mid uh, 2000s, which had this wonderful graphics about um, uh, passion. Like, how do you get engaged customers who are really happy with you? Well, you have to accept the balance in the universe. You, you can either stay in the middle, be gray and beige, and no one really cares. Like, all right, yeah, we use this thing. I mean, oh, whatever. 
that doesn't sort of invite people to spread the gospel and, and tell other people about what you do. If you want people out here, people really love what you do, really passionate about your product, you have to accept that to get someone out here, there must be order and balance in the universe with an opposing force on the other side of people who absolutely hate your guts, who hate what you're doing, who thinks you're, you're totally stupid and wrong and whatever. That is the, the balance wheel you have to, to be on. And we just said very early, we're comfortable with that. We don't want to be beige. We don't want to be gray. We don't want to be in the middle. We want to be at the edges. We want to have people who are really excited about the work and the ideas that we have. And we accept that the price for that is that a, a lot of people will be on the other side saying, oh my God, that's so stupid. You guys are so trite. Uh, you're building a lifestyle business is one of the sort of supposedly insults that we get all the time. Um, you're not ambitious enough. Um, oh, you're just working on a fancy to-do list. Like we have all, all the shit that we would get over the years for this. And it, for me, it just strengthened my resolve that like, hey, we're onto something. If you're not saying anything of interest, like no one gives a fuck. If you're saying something of interest and there are people who like it, just accept that there's gonna be people who don't like it. Now, that doesn't mean that just because people hate what you do, you're on the right track. That would be a pretty erroneous conclusion to draw from that. But I will say that it is a likely side product if you are doing things, if you are pushing boundaries, and particularly if you're pushing the cultural frame. And we really are pushing the cultural frame when it comes to especially American work ethics and startup culture in general, that a lot of things are just taken for granted. And we say, hey, stop for a second. Think about the stuff that you take for granted and revisit. Maybe it isn't so smart. Um, but you kind of need to have your eyes open to that. And, and sometimes the way to get that eye open is to kind of get just shelved, like bombarded with kind of what seems on its face offensive ideas or wrong ideas or crazy ideas. And that's what we try to do. We keep lopping these intellectual grenades into intimate territory. And um, it's funny I'm using that metaphor because one of the chapters we actually have, and it doesn't have to be crazy at work, is that there's way too many fucking war met metaphors in business and we should stop doing that. So um, anyway, <laughs> kind of get dragged into it. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's, that's, that's the spiel. Uh, absolute, just accepting the fact that not everyone is gonna like what you do and that's not a problem. And it also doesn't mean they're wrong. That's the other thing. I mean, sometimes it becomes a little, to clip like, oh, haters gonna hate. And that just means that haters are stupid people that um, don't have any real points. I think they do. In a lot of cases, we get fair pushback where perhaps our ideas don't work in all contexts and, and we write in a way as to not caveat our language constantly with like, oh yeah, this is what worked for us and whatever, in such a way that it can rub people the wrong way and, and fairly so for them to take objection to that. Um, so being comfortable with pushback doesn't mean just closing your ears. You should actually listen and maybe you learn something sometimes. You just shouldn't be deterred, right? Just because someone says like, oh, well, you're off the wrong track, listen to what they have today. Maybe they have a good point. Maybe you can slightly alter your direction, but don't just stop going. Yeah, that's so true. And I think, I think a lot of people are just scared and don't want to accept criticism. They think that what they're doing is perfect and and if there's, like you said, like haters going to hate all that kind of stuff. And I think that's a big reason that people fail is because they're, they're only seeking positive attributes. But like you mentioned, totally. all, all the stuff that you mentioned is so true. So we're going to go more to what you do, like on a daily basis in terms of programming. So we just want to know how you learned to program in, initially. Sure. So I took quite a few steps at it. I got my first computer when I was six. 
six years old and I tried to learn how to program by typing in games from the back of a magazine. So uh, back then, this is like what, mid eighties, um, a lot of software was actually distributed in written form. Like they would write all the code down in the back of a magazine. And then you could get that by typing it in yourself. It was a pretty primitive way of distributing software. And I never, it, it didn't click. I don't think I ever got a single game that I tried to type in to work. Um, because I mean, you have one comma wrong or one semicolon wrong and like the whole thing doesn't work. And if you don't know what's up, um, you don't know how to do it. So I definitely was not like this child prodigy of learning how to program when I was six years old. Not for lack of trying, but for lack of succeeding. Um, and then I tried again when I was like uh, 10, 12, 13 years old or something like that. Uh, I wanted to build, I wanted to make games. I really, I mean, one of the reasons I got into computers was because of video games. I just love playing video games. And I love the idea of one day being able to create some myself. So I tried again when I was 10, 12 years old, failed again. I was using something called AMAs and easy AMAs. And even easy AMAs, it was not actually fucking easy. If you don't understand the core concepts of programming of variables and loops and so on, and if no one is explaining it to you in a way where you can understand it, it's pretty difficult. Like a lot of programmers, including myself now, go like, oh, this is easy. It, which is, it always reminds me of like, whoever like the smartest astrophysicists in the world probably go like, oh, the Higgs bosom, like this is the equation, it's easy. Like everything is easy once you've figured it out. Like that's not exactly a measure of approachability. Um, so I failed a bunch of times. And then I think that when I was about 15, 16 or so, um, the internet was just starting to kind of get wider spread. This was in like 95, 96. I started just learning HTML and CSS. And HTML, that I understood, right? Like you didn't, you don't have to be that sophisticated although now it's a little more complicated, but it's like a markup language to say, this is the title and this is the body. And like, I could kind of figure that out. And I just started working with the web and, and all of it in the service of video games again. I, I was creating these websites to review video games, which was a way of basically getting free video games. Um, <laughs> because like I, I'd go to uh, the game stores and say like, hey, I'm gonna review your game on my gaming website. Can I borrow it for free? And, and they did, and just, I kind of, that led to the other thing, and I started working with the programmers because obviously just creating a, a whole website, knowing HTML is, is good, but you can't create a whole function of website with like comments and all that stuff without some programming. So I had a bunch of friends that were programmers, they helped me create it, and then just slowly over a couple of years, I kind of picked up enough of it that I started doing a little stuff myself. But truly, it wasn't really until, um, I was in my my twenties before programming was something like I felt like, okay, I kind of I got this, I, I understand this enough that I can do something. And in fact, my first true paid programming job was for Jason, my business partner, two thousand one, when he hired me. Before that, I had done some work in that area, but it was mostly been around HTML and these other things. It wasn't true programming. Programming. Jason was the first person who literally paid me to be a programmer. So it took a long fucking time, right? Like I tried at six, failed, tried again at 10, 12, kind of failed, started at like 15, HTML, whatever, didn't truly get it until I was into my 20s, which is another reason I'm kind of um, on the barricades about a lot of the startup culture, which is all about like, oh, if you start to learn programming when you're 20 years old, you're already 10 years behind. Like all the masterminds started when they were 10 years old and was like, fuck off. Right, like um, that is just such exclusionary bullshit that just fits your profile of what a programmer is 
supposed to look like that it's supposed to be this pasty white nerd in a hoodie and like that's the only people who are uh, sort of allowed to be part of the esteemed programming club fuck that there's programmers of all sizes and shapes and ages and and whatever and that's what's so wonderful about programming is that like anyone really can learn it there's nothing sort of physiologically holding your bag. It's not like, well, you can't be a football player unless you're so-and-so tall and so-and-so strong. Anyone can really learn how to program. Now, anyone might not get good at it or be interested in it or, or whatever, but the people who end up being programmers are the people who program. Don't give us any of this other bullshit about what they're supposed to look like and what age they were supposed to start at or all of this other nonsense. Definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's so true just in terms of like the stereotype that, that they get. Um, and I just want to ask you quick about what you said earlier about creating your own video game. Is that something you still want to do? Like create like a mainstream video game? Is that something you're working on? It's funny because no, um, I realized that one of the reasons I had such a hard time with programming was because I was trying to learn how to program games and programming games is a lot about math. And that was what I equated with, with video games for a long time, or not video games, with programming for a long time. And that was why it was kind of like, this isn't really my thing. Like, I'm okay at math. I can figure shit out. It just, I don't want to do vector calculations, right? Like, that's just not my, that's not what I'm interested in. And what really clicked for me for programming, when I realized was that programming is not just programming. There's programming that's a lot like math. If you want to program a 3D video game engine, it's mostly about math, right? Um, if you want to program, let's say, a business communication system, it's mostly not at all about math. It's much closer to writing. And I really loved writing from, from an early age. I mean, when I was sort of infatuated with video games, the main expression I had for that appreciation was writing. I would write reviews. I would write news. I would write all these things. And it was really when I saw that programming could be that, could be like writing, that it clicked for me and I was like, yeah. I can do this. I don't want to do the math thing, even though, I mean, occasionally you have to, but um, I want to do the writing thing and programming can be writing. Awesome. I'm on board. That's Which means, like, yeah, I can't write a video game. I've tried a few times to look at some <laughs> of these things and I have this vague understanding of like the basics of it. And then whenever I see like collision detection, for example, like two characters on the screen, when do they touch? And I see all the calculations for doing that. I'm like, yeah, okay. This is why I'm not <laughs> programming video games and why yeah. I program business communication systems. Yep. So besides like try attempting video games, what were some other projects you worked on during your high school years or when you first kind of started? Yeah, so it was, it was all about publishing for the web. I had um, the first website I did was something called, in Danish, essentially the console, like video game consoles. Uh, and the console, I think we started that in like 95, um, was about reviewing a bunch of different video games. And then I think maybe one or two years later, I started a website called Quake3.dk, which was this anticipation website for the release of the video game Quake3. Uh, I was infatuated with the game Quake2, and probably the game I've spent the most hours ever playing was Quake2. Um, I mean, we do all these LAN parties where you take your computer into a big room with a bunch of other people who brought their computers and you'd like put the network together and you'd play like deathmatch. And I just, it was such a fucking great game. And I just, I, I really, I really liked it. And we had such anticipation for the release of the new game that I think like for two or three 
because we ran this website that almost daily had something to write about. Like, oh, they just released this new thing or there's this new piece of artwork out or whatever it is. Um, so I ran that website and then I kind of got, I got hired by a portal in Denmark. This was around the year 2000 where like web portals like Yahoo and so on um, was really taking off and there was a Danish web portal. They wanted to have like a gaming section and they were like, oh, hey, do you want to come write about games here and get paid to do it? And I was just fresh out of high school and I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Um, this sounds great. Like you, you're actually going to pay me to do this? I was just doing it just for the fun of it. Uh, this is great. So that was called, um, well, first it was part of this portal. And then part of that work, I spun out another thing when the portal thing kind of was looking a little shaky, a new website, new gaming website that was going to be its own thing called Daily Rush. And that website is still there. Like, I think it's been around for 18 years. I was only involved in the first like two years. I built it, I set it up, whatever. And then this guy um, I knew took it over and, and, and ran it until, uh, Kind of sad story he died uh, a couple of months ago but um like 20 years almost of, of sort of continuation of that process i started back in uh in 95 with these websites and do you still have a passion for video games today like do you still play any system at all yeah i i totally play I, i've actually gotten more into it again now that my oldest son is six years old we played a bunch of video games together um Mostly the Nintendo games, uh, Nintendo Switch, uh, Mario Odyssey, and Zelda. I'd say those are probably two of the best games of all time. And they're definitely two of the best games of sort of recent years. And then on top of that, we played a bunch of Minecraft. He loves Minecraft. And, uh, and I've always played a lot of uh, racing games. I, I kind of got into real racing once I moved, into the US, uh, moved to the US and got my driver's license and so on. But I kept playing racing video games. So uh, Forza Motorsport 7 on the Xbox and... Uh, the game I've been playing a lot with, with, with my boy is um, Horizons. Horizons 3 and Horizons 4. Those are just great open explorer kind of games. And uh, yeah, I still love video games. I just, and I, sometimes I'll get on these kicks. Like I won't play video games for, right now we're playing because he wants to play a bunch. But before that, I kind of get into these, these kicks where I'd find like one game, like on the, on the iPad, for example, there was these, uh, I think it's called Kingdom Rush. Um, it's this like tower defense game. They have like four different ones. I like, I get super into that and like play just a ton of it. Like whenever I travel, I play like four hours on a plane or something. Um, and then I kind of, I would fall out of it and then I wouldn't have another game. And then I kind of just wouldn't, wouldn't play games. Um, for a while I was also, I was really into like the Call of Duty stuff. And then it kind of just got, there's only so many times you can fucking shoot Nazis before you go <laughs> like, all right, I've done this before. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a good summary. Still love games. I'm I'm super happy that uh, both of my boys are sort of into video games. I think video games are really important for building up all sorts of high or uh, eye hand coordination skills, and they're just they're they're just fun. I mean, I, I love video games. Yeah, I always feel like people tell me like, "Are you going to grow up and stop playing video games? Like you're 19, eventually you're going to have to give up Xbox." Like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's so much yeah. fun. I don't really see why mm -hmm. I have to. Absolutely. I mean, I got that same thing, which is kind of funny, right? Like I, I'd get a little bit from like, oh my God, like how expensive was that video game system you bought or whatever. And you're like, yeah, okay. It got me here. It fucking made me a millionaire. What do you say now? Right? I mean, this was, I wouldn't have gotten on this path if it hadn't been for video games. There's no fucking way I would have been interested in the web or, or programming or any of these other things. Yeah, absolutely. Do I credit video games as a pivotal part of getting me to where I was? So yeah. 
I'm a big fan. That's awesome. All right, and then I'm just going to branch off into the thing you started Ruby on Rails. So how, like, why did you want to start that? And then how did you kind of implement going about starting that? Sure. So Ruby on Rails is this toolkit of a bunch of different stuff that you need if you want to build a web application like Twitter, Shopify, GitHub, Basecamp, whatever. Um, and I built it because I wanted to use this programming language called Ruby that in 2003 was not at all popular in the West. It had actually been around for almost 10 years by that point um, out of Japan. But it hadn't had a whole lot of adoption in the West, but I kind of got onto it through some luminaries in the industry who kept talking highly about it. And then I read some articles where, where these people were saying, hey, if I could write in whatever programming language I wanted, I would totally write Ruby. And I had been writing in PHP, I'd done some ASP, I'd done a bunch of, uh, I'd done some Java stuff, I'd done a bunch of things, and I didn't really love any of those things. I mean, I kind of programmed and I kind of got into programming, but I wasn't in love with any of those programming environments. And then I found Ruby, and I found Ruby actually um, as we were starting work on Basecamp. Um, I looked into it a little bit before that, but really I got into it full on when we started Basecamp. I gave myself two weeks to try to see if Ruby could actually be used to build this thing. I knew I could build it in PHP. I didn't really want to, but uh, let, let me try Ruby. And it took two weeks, and I was like head over heels in love with the programming language. It was just such a like cosmic brain explosion where I went like, Jesus, programming can be like this? Holy crap, that's awesome. And I started just building all the things I needed to build Basecamp in Ruby. And I was like, oh, I need to talk to a database. Well, I need to have some code to do that. I need to render some HTML. I need to do all these things. And before I knew it, I had this kind of substantial toolbox that had allowed me to build Basecamp. And I thought like, well, I'm building on top of a lot of open source software here. I'm using an open source web server and database server and operating system. And I get all of these things for free just because people enjoy writing this code or, or being paid to write this code and they're sharing it with the world for free. Now, I finally have something that I wrote on my own. I'd be an asshole if I didn't share that, right? Like I get all this stuff for free and then like, what am I going to do? I'm going to sell my thing. Um, that didn't feel right, especially just given the fact that it was this infrastructure software, right? Not that I'm opposed to selling software. Clearly, I sell software. That's, that's how I make a living. But I thought that this infrastructure stuff, the things that weren't particular about Basecamp, let's share. Like, there's nothing. People are not going to buy Basecamp because it's built on some proprietary platform. They don't give two shits about what it's built on. It's, it's on the web. It could be like a hamster running in a wheel somewhere for all they know. Um, that's not how, that's not the differentiating factor. So I took all this stuff. I put it in a box and I called it Ruby on Rails because a big part of it was I wanted more people to discover Ruby. Like it had been such an epiphany for me to discover Ruby and I had become such a happier programmer. I had become such a more dedicated programmer. I had actually switched from being uh, programming is just something I need to do to get programs to I like I write programs because I love writing programs. And a huge part of that was due to the Ruby programming language. So I put it all in a box, called it Ruby on Rails, and then I approached the distribution of that in kind of a different way. I treated it like a, like a product, like it's something that needed to be marketed. So I, I made a video, I had a website, I did a bunch of things that people weren't necessarily doing at that time to promote open source software. I treated it like it was a commercial product that 
it would be it would be better if more people knew about it and adopted it. I had all sorts of guerrilla marketing strategies of antagonizing other uh, programming communities, uh, particularly the Java community, um, that kind of played out to varying degrees of success. And and kind of just, I wanted to kick this off. I wanted to give Ruby a real shot at becoming a major programming language that was completely legit for someone to choose for, for their new product. And I think uh, that part definitely worked out, right? Like millions of apps have been created in Ruby and Rails. It's a, a fully legit thing for people to, to pick versus when I did it, uh, there virtually were no one in the US getting paid to write Ruby programs. And now these days there are probably hundreds of thousands of people around the world getting paid to, to write Ruby. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I just know from personal experience, uh, trying to learn Java, Definitely wasn't easy, so I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Ruby, I'd say, is a lot easier. I really wish Java was the thing that they taught at my school as well. And I'm kind of pissed about that because I feel like it turned a lot of people who could have become programmers off programming because it was such a pain in the ass and it was so unintuitive. And it was just such a frustrating experience that no one that I went to my Java classes with went out like, oh, my God. Did, I mean, Java was just the best, wasn't it? No, they all went like, oh, fuck. Um, and programming just shouldn't have to be like that. I think it can be so much more fun and so much more approachable, so much more rewarding at an earlier stage. Um, and I, I feel like Ruby is that. So yeah, if, if you give it another go, give it a go with Ruby. Yeah, for sure. Because it's exactly what happened to me. Like I, I thought programming would be this thing that I'd be so interested in and I'd love to do it. And then it was just like Java and it was like, no. <laughs> totally. I mean, I would be the same way. I don't think I'd be programming if I had to program in Java. I'd fucking go do something else. Yeah, it's um, terrible. terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so for some people, I mean, some of that is just personal opinion. Other people do legitimately like Java and, and they seem to enjoy that. Um, so whatever floats your boat, but I, I do feel like uh, I've witnessed lots of people who were unable to find that joy and love of programming through something like Java. Did you say that Twitter was founded using your software, this Ruby? Yeah, yeah. So Twitter was started on Ruby and Rails. It was funny because it was kind of one of those uh, dramatic stories where um, it was founded on Ruby and Rails and they kind of... Uh, built it in a way where they got off the ground very quickly, but some of the let's say architectural decisions about how they put the system together weren't super sound. So by the time they got to the point where they had a lot of successes, I think like maybe this is like 2010 or something like that. Anyway, they were having a lot of problems with it. And one of the things that they kind of just blamed was the fact that like it was Ruby and Rails and like, oh, well, we should pick another platform. And they partly, mostly, they still use some Ruby and Rails as uh, the latest that I'm told, but they also have a bunch of stuff that's building uh, in other things. And it kind of became one of those things like, oh, on the one hand, it was cool that Twitter got off the ground using Ruby and Rails. Perhaps it would never have gotten off the ground in that way if they had had to build it out in Java um, because they couldn't just have iterated fast enough or whatever else you want to blame it on. But then once they got a bunch of success and they weren't kind of they didn't have the architecture and perhaps they didn't have the full team to, to deal with those problems. It kind of became a little bit of a drag. And then I'm, I'm glad to see that we now have some other champions such as uh, Shopify, which is what, 15, 
a billion dollar company today that's running on Ruby and Rails, GitHub that was just bought by Microsoft for, I don't know, $7 billion. Not because the numbers matter, but because the scale matters. That both of those sites, not only are they proudly on Ruby and Rails, they also run really well and are major important uh, applications that a lot of people know on and depend on. So. They, they kind of work as a good way of refuting the bullshit we always heard, like, oh, Ruby on Rails doesn't scale. And it's like, okay, well, if it scales to $15 billion, it's probably gonna be good enough for you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Airbnb, I think is another one a lot of people know about that uh, on, uh, on Ruby on Rails. We have a bunch of other examples, Hulu, um, uh, a bunch of major sites. And it's not really, I mean, in some ways, like, I care and I don't care. Like it's great to have some examples of showing what it is, but it's also not like, yeah, I don't need all the websites in the world to run on my shit. I just need enough people to be interested that we can have a great group of people who can continue to evolve the framework. We're just coming up now on a major new release, uh, Rails 6, that's gonna come out this, uh, this spring. And it's just like, I, I'm looking back at that and like, wow, man, I've been doing this for 15 years and we're still going this strong that like a bunch of new apps started on, even though there's other things comes and go, nothing lives forever. And Ruby and Rails definitely had a moment in time where it was very dominant in the discussion. And now there are more choices and now people are using JavaScript and using these other things. And that's totally healthy and normal. Um, looking at technology as a horse race, as this idea of domination, that there can be only one winner, I think it's, it's just retarded. I mean, it's just stupid. I mean, you don't look at languages like that. Like, oh my God, man, I really hope French goes out of business. Like then we can all just speak English, right? What the fuck? Uh, <laughs> no, like the diversity in and of itself is a value. The fact that the world isn't just all the same. They don't speak the same language. They don't wear the same clothes. They don't cherish the same thing. They don't all program in the same goddamn programming language. That's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I think that ties into like just the whole theme of what you do um, with your company and as a person and what we talked about today is like just trying to not having to conform to what everyone else is doing. Like you could do it your own way. You don't have to be following the crowd, which is great. Um, and I just wanted to ask real quick, like how much do you think it cost Twitter? And also how much time do you think it took to like put up that app, that first version of the app with Ruby? Very little. I mean, that was the other boost, right? So when maybe they had problems later on, but later on is a good time to have problems. <laughs> when you, when you're, you have problems when you're such a massive fucking success um, that you can afford to hire a bunch of people to think about your problems at a different level, that's a good problem to have. The worst time to have problems is when you're trying to get off the ground, right? You have a ton of problems getting your shit out the door or being able to do what you wanna do with a small team, that might very well just kill you right there. I'd rather have a shot at something and then of course, for the vast majority of people, like they're never going to run into the kind of performance issues or whatever that Twitter had to uh, had to deal with. As far as I remember, they only had like a couple of programmers in the beginning working on uh, Twitter. And yeah, I'll take some credit for the fact that they were working in a productive environment that allowed them to experiment. I mean, let's not forget, Twitter didn't start as Twitter. Twitter started as a way of telling your friends which bar you were at. I mean, I guess some people maybe are still using Twitter as that, but let's say it's not exactly representative of what Twitter became. Um, so being able to be sort of quick on your feet and changing your approach and, and so forth, pretty important, right? Like if you knew on day one what your final destination would be, okay, maybe you'd do it another way, but no one fucking knows, right? Twitter might 
might just as well fizzle. They might as well turn into something else. If they weren't able to be quick on their feet and run with a lean team and so forth, they might just never have happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I just want to ask one last thing. This is our last question is like, how do you get all these big names, entrepreneurs on board? Was that something that you guys proactively did or like attracting Cuban to say what he said about rework? Is that something that they came to you with or did you kind of go after these people? Um, it's a cool question about Cuban. I'm trying to remember where that came from. Some of it is you put out what you have to say to the world for long enough and, and people are going to start listening in random places you did not necessarily expect. Um, but I'm trying to remember if there was anything more certain. I think maybe Jason had talked to Cuban. So Cuban uh, built his fortune in the tech industry as well. He sold a big company to, I think, Yahoo or something. So he's sort of, he was clued into that industry. Uh, and I think Jason perhaps had some personal connection with him and sent him a copy of the book. And he just really liked the book and, and offered up uh, uh, a great quote for it. Um, so it's just kind of funny. And I get this all the time where like, I don't actually really know who our customers are. Most of the time, I don't know who our readers are. I know that Rework has sold more than half a million copies around the world, but I don't know like who they are, right? So sometimes like I'll hear from someone, they're like, oh yeah, yeah I read Rework. I'm like, oh man, that's cool. I had no fucking idea, right? So sometimes that stuff just sort of comes back to you and that's not why you do it. You're planting these seeds because you have something to say and you want to get it out to the world. And then you kind of just reap it, reap it back. But otherwise I'd say we're not super proactive about like, chasing those things down or networking or doing anything else like that. Like I live as a hermit most of the time, right? At least a professional speaking. I mean, I have my home office. I prefer to work from there. I don't go to a lot of conferences. I don't even speak to a lot of, at a lot of conferences anymore. I don't go to a lot of industry networking events. I've never have. Uh, that's just not my kind of, I like to interact with the world a little bit of at an arm's length, preferably through writing. So like, I tweet a lot, I write a lot, and like that's kind of how I interact with the world. And it allows me sort of this buffer space where I can then also retreat into my own thoughts and my own work and protect that time, not split it up with tons of lunch meetings or tons of network events or conferences or all the other stuff that goes with that. Awesome. And if there's one thing you want to leave our listeners off with, maybe where they could find your book or just one last message, what would it be? Sure. So uh, I'd say if you're interested in any of these topics we've talked about today, my books are really the distilled form for all of that stuff. Um, Basecamp.com slash books. You'll find all my books there. Links to the book. Basecamp.com is, is the business that I built. And if you're into a fire hose of political tech and various rantings, then at DHH on Twitter um, is a good place to follow me and i have my own website uh dhh.dk where you can find out stuff about me awesome awesome yeah, anything you want to add that was awesome for sure thank you so much man yeah we really cool. appreciate the time my pleasure yeah let me know when uh when it's wrapped out and and i'll tweet it out sweet appreciate it. You, yeah man. we'll send appreciate you everything that. appreciate the time great man. all right later guys keep in thanks. touch thanks Hey guys, show some love for the Real Talk University podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on the Apple Podcast app. See you all next week.